This episode is sponsored by Anchor.fm. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. Basically, it's free. Secondly, there's creation tools that allow you to record and also edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. And after which, Anchor will automatically distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other platforms. You can also make money from your podcast with literally no minimum listenership. So it's everything you basically need in a podcast in one place. So go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started today. So welcome, Lee, to the Naked Dialogue podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to be on the show. And we also have Abraham here. Hey, how's it going? I'm back once again. Hey, nice to, nice to hear you, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's always great to be on a different podcast uh, so you can get like a different group of people to speak to in a different um um you know there's there's always going to be different people following different podcasts so it's great to be on with you guys as well yes this is this has a a great byproduct of networking it's it's undeniable um definitely tell us us more about you what was uh your background into getting any into any sort of uh Jungian approach to, to psychoanalysis or or even uh yeah, sure. Well, um, I just, I definitely wouldn't say I'm a Jungian at all. Um, but, um, I studied some uh, of Jung's work in uh, a graduate program called, uh, at Pacifica for, um, Jungian and archetypal psychology. And that kind of means a mixture of, um, um, Jung's work with, um, James Hillman. And so Jung was, um, kind of the, uh, he brought, you know, half of the um, the problem in front of the Pacifica people. So they they kind of took his um, work with like dream analysis and stuff like that, and uh, worked in symbols and worked it into um, uh, archetypal psychology, which uh, pretty much is kind of going in the realm of like archetypes and their influences on um, human experience and how you can. Uh, supposedly you work with the archetypes in order to um, learn more about yourself and your place in the world and things like that. But my personal background, um, I have always been interested in dreams, um, but, you know, life generally takes us in a different direction than just fully studying something that we're passionate about. Um, so you have to find time to do it on your own. But uh, so I, I've always been a prolific dreamer and, um, you know, I started at a young age just telling my, my mom about my dreams and um, hoping that she didn't go mad listening to her son just ramble on about these crazy adventures he has at night. And um, she did a pretty good job with that. And she entertained me enough that I was, I really thought there was something in dreams that could um, kind of, we can learn from. And, you know, uh, she's a very... I'd say religious person. So she, she reads the Bible and she would talk to me about how, you know, God had um, given people dreams sometimes, you know, to either tell them about their future or tell them about something um, they're working through and stuff like that. So kind of always had that in the back of my mind, which is kind of very uh, Jungian in a, in a sense. So uh, then I 
ended up um, graduating from high school eventually and um, joining the Navy and I wanted to be a pilot. So I went to flight school and I uh, had some complications there with medical stuff. So didn't end up going through that, but ended up staying in the Navy for about 14 years um, and doing other things. And then um, eventually got out of the military um, due to some other medical issues. But uh, it was kind of interesting because dream experiences actually kind of foretold, you know, in a way, um, the thing that I was struggling with, with the military and my medical stuff. So I, I listened to those dreams and it, it helped me um, get on a different path, you know. So I found that I had kind of suppressed my um, desire with this, you know, the unconscious world through um, working a very um, corporate type job almost, you know, and in a very like type A personality environment where uh, creativity isn't really something that is explored by a lot of people. And I kind of had to suppress that part of myself. And by doing so, I think those dreams kind of bubbled up into um, really being commutative, really wanting to say what they're trying to say. And, um, you know, and, it, and since I've been out, they've really been um, active. And so I, I had my um, undergraduate degree in psychology when I was in the military. And um, in that degree, I explored like Buddhism and um, uh, different um, dream experiences that people had just permanently on my own uh, research through directed studies and stuff like that. And those really uh, impact me greatly um, just for knowledge base and also trying to understand where my dreams were, but I didn't really have any like formal training or anything like that in uh, dream analysis or anything like that. I just had some good mentors like Ryan Hurd, uh, who runs dreamstudies.org. He's a great guy and mentor of mine. Um, and then some Buddhist uh, people, figures in my life and stuff like that. And then uh, I reached out to some shamans in South America and stuff, and made friends with them. And they kind of, um, you know, in their own way, directed me to um, some knowledge and stuff. And then eventually um, I was looking for, you know, a little bit more in graduate work and had the opportunity to go to grad school. So um, I started at uh, John F. Kennedy University in California, um, doing their consciousness studies um, course and uh, it was great but it was kind of taking me in a direction and kind of I felt away from dreams in a way and more towards the like the larger picture of consciousness which is a little bit too big for me at the time and I think still and um, so I kind of moved more to something that I became interested in in that school which was symbols and symbology and stuff and in dreams uh, the relationship there and that took me to Pacifica Graduate Institute where I um, started attending and that was more like I said Jungian uh, focused and I really got to start diving into who Jung was his history how he came to these ideas and um, you know their worth and the school not only takes you know young ideas um, they kind of have a foundation of like uh, Jung is um, puts the emphasis on the importance of dreams and understanding them. And then they kind of give students additional tools in some of their classes on dream understanding, you know, versus like interpretation and building this relationship between 
the image in in dream and what an image actually is and relating it to the dream experience so that you can learn from it you know um additionally you know we have uh in young there's the archetypes um primarily like shadow and anima and anima and things like that so shadow work you know it, in pacifica was a big deal and kind of um key to me i'd say um working through some of that stuff because primarily when i started having more um let's say out of the world type dreams you know like out of body experiences stuff like that um a common figure that would pop up was kind of this archetypal shadow figure so i kind of um wanted to dive into that in that school and it was very healing i'd say so so and you know today i i wrote a book on lucid dreaming um not today but this during the time of Pacifica and a little bit before I wrote this book on lucid dreaming, uh, exploring my personal experiences through not just my dreams, but the research to finding um, kind of out in a process of learning about how to understand uh, an individual, individual's dreams. So the book goes into um, that as well as like how to have some of these more um, out of the world experiences such as like out of body experiences and lucid dreams so that's kind of the big rundown on who i am kind of and where i'm at a little bit very very thorough it was it was um it was very welcome um say more about your connection to james hillman um so i i i'm not a fan of james hillman at all to be honest with you um just because, but I, I do respect the the concept, you know, um, that these uh, he he is kind of saying that archetypes uh, can be experienced, uh, and you can work with them to understand uh, more of your place in the world. James Hillman is really actually hard for me to understand, even so I I can't even say I I don't like him or I do, because um, his ideas are so abstractly complex and kind of chaotic that it's hard to grasp exactly what he's getting to uh, in his work so if you've ever read a james hillman book um it's it's not a book that you could just read and go oh you know i i get what he's saying here you know it's kind of like what is he saying the entire at the end like most books but you don't so um I think in a way, though, that's kind of healing because it, um, what's that? I've only read Animal Presences. I think we're having some disconnect in the network, but that's okay. Okay. Um, I, I, I've read uh, one of his lesser works, Animal Presences. Oh, uh, okay. Where a dictionary of symbols. Um I'm not sure. The, the, way, the way that I have always conceptualized James Hillman is as a postmodernist extension of the, yeah, I think he he stops caring a little bit more of, of how these, uh, these metaphors exist and just assumes that they all do. And his yeah. work in alchemy, I think, is particularly, uh, there's a, a, quite a bit of structure to, to what you delivered. Um, a lot more comprehensive uh, to some extent, um, really more practical. That's that's what I found. 
Um, and yes, perhaps not all to the fundamentals at all. And very different the most resident archetypes and laying down some sort of psychological affiliation. Do you use archetypal psychology when you try to interpret your dreams? Because you've written a book about dreams and, and you've done quite a lot of work in researching about dreams. So I was wondering, like, when you analyze your dreams, which approach do you take? The archetypal one or do you have any other alternative? Uh, for myself, um, I would say that I use, you know, everything available to me. So um, you could say that, you know, putting a word on it, I'd say I use some James Hillman, some young some freud some uh my own you know concoctions <laughs> to come to conclusions everything that i can really get to i kind of use it's not a i wouldn't say that i use one person's um technique over another or anything like that um i think you know there i believe there is structure in the the unconscious um unlike um some people may think and I believe that symbols are universal um and i believe that you know there's essentially archetypal forces that you can engage with and you can come to know unlike um young would say and um you know and i understand the power of symbols and images and also the chaotic like um experiences that you can have in the unconscious that are completely out of the um uh, realm of understanding really from just um, a um, conscious thought you know way you have to kind of embody it and leave it in the unconscious experience to kind of really get to what it means I think by just letting it occur um, so I mean in that sense I don't really restrict myself to like oh I'm gonna can use this other this practice by Jung, you know, to to understand these experiences. I mean, if you really go into it and you understand, um, you start to understand who Jung um, and James Hillman were and Freud. Um, not many of them had any type of experiences that I would consider as lucid. And uh, Jung wrote about a few of them. Um, they were Jung and Freud were in contact with. Van Eden, who was a prolific lucid dreamer and wrote about it very greatly. Um, Jung kind of blew him off as just uh, no one and discredited him. Freud knew him very well and wrote to him and was actually and cared very much about his opinion. Um, and then James Hillman, obviously, uh, I don't know of any time that he actually knew of Van Eden because it was before his time. But um, Van Eden was um, somebody that Freud even referenced in some of his work. So, you know, if you have never really um, had experiences that are atypical of a normal dream that brings awareness into it, it's very hard for you to um, understand those experiences and be able to talk from them. So, um, and, and Jung did have a few experiences, but he, I don't think he actually understood what he was experiencing. And he kind of wrote it down as non-dreamlike. So, um, I mean, it, it's it's a complex things, and I would never limit somebody to just using one technique over another. I would say that it's important to have like a broad understanding of like 
or all these different perspectives and kind of what works best for you so you can um, build your own techniques in a way. And that's what my book really kind of goes into is like how I did it, um, how I started creating my own techniques to understand dream experiences, and then um, how another person can kind of use those techniques in order to start exploring the dreams. I don't think there's like this end all like um, process. I think it's more of like you learn martial arts and eventually you kind of come to your own understanding of a martial art you learn enough that you can kind of mix them together when you need to and um kind of create your own version you know right yeah it's very synthetic um and and i think the the approach nowadays to do I, the most accessible way of learning is is by demonstrating what you've done um, and i think uh, you have a publisher or, or are you self-publishing yeah, I have a publisher it's, uh, with Inner Traditions, which is a decently large publisher in the U.S. for um, these type of subjects. Um, and they do a great job, like, um, getting books out to people, um, things like that. So uh, they've been very supportive with this the book. And, um, you know, it's not easy getting a book published, I'd say, because you have to have it edited properly and a bunch of other stuff before even a publisher will really look at it. So um, there's quality, I'd say, to this book versus just me rambling, <laughs> which in the first version probably looked much like that. So, um, and it's it's a shorter book. It's not me going on and on for hours about um, certain topics or my life or anything like that. It specifically focuses on um, my life quickly in the um, introduction. So you don't even have to read it. And the rest is just about um, what, these experiences are I try to define them as best I can and then I try to talk about how you can actually have the experiences and then kind of what to do after you start having these experiences because most books on lucid dreams don't really talk about um, what happens after the fact they kind of just leave you there and that can be a very dangerous world I think uh, when you start having these um, experiences that you know go into the range of like spiritual experiences that are very um, people don't really understand the impact that that kind of experience can have so um you know it can be very ungrounding can cause a lot of psychological issues i think in people um because it's, it's kind of in reaching into the unknown it can be traumatically terrifying sometimes and um and i've had my share of scary dreams in that experience and also very healing and um loving dreams so it's, it's as broadly ranged as the, as J, J, Hillman would probably say, is like the animals in the forest, you know? Yeah, I'd like, uh, I want to mention in defense of Hume that I think there is, especially now with the publication of the Black Books, finally, uh, there's, there's a lot more to sediment. I think the, the, that, that he was in fact having extremely lucid narrative dreams um, in the sense of more like hypnagogia rather than actual sleeping. Apparently what he, he was yeah. on his office desk. Yeah, he had a, I would say hypnagogia when he fell. He had the feeling of falling, if that's what you're referring to. Right, yeah. Yeah, so he, he fell and into a hole, you know, and once he hit the bottom, it's very like Dante's Inferno-like. Um, 
in the and I wrote a paper uh, on that subject uh, relating um, uh, Jung's experience of this dream into lucid dreaming and how it can actually be used in depth psychology because they actually pretty much ignore the concept of bringing consciousness to the unconscious because that's the whole point of the unconscious you know to be unconscious once it's conscious it's no longer unconscious so you can't know the unconscious um in that sense so but Jung fell into this hole and then he had this um life-changing experience essentially and he wrote about it and he's like it was the most profound experience you know I've had and you know I look at that and read that one experience I'm like that's a that's a lucid dream um you know lucidity doesn't uh, limit itself to just the dream REM experience, you know, the typical, oh, wow, I'm dreaming. This is all just a, you know, my, in my mind experience. It's more hypnagogia can be a lucid experience too. And there's many books written on hypnagogia being a lucid dream state that you can use to, um, you know, generate content and stuff like that in the dream or interface with the dream. And a lot of, um, a lot of my experiences that were the most profound were in hypnagogia during sleep paralysis or, um, you know, hypnopompia during waking experiences. Once I wake up from uh, the phases of sleep. So, and they're very uh, challenging. They can be very challenging, but they can also be very healing experiences too, if you kind of know how to work with them. So from what I gather is that we, we use an integrating approach to integrate your dreams. So you're really integrating with all the theories that you use to psychoanalyze your dreams. And so I was wondering if you think that a certain amount of the shadow self is you during integrating your dreams. Do you think there's a connection there? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think, I, I mean, I can only speak from my experiences. I don't really know other people's experiences um you know i can hear about them i can read them but i don't know how another person's experience really is without you know having that experience because experience isn't just limited to the the sounds the taste or the hearing that you experience in a dream it goes beyond that i feel and so um but during my dream experiences i've encountered um what i would call what um Young seems to define or Hillman seems to define as archetypes and um, they embody, um, you know, they wouldn't, they would be rolling in the grave by me saying that they embody actual dream characters. Uh, but um, I would say that from my experience, they definitely embody uh, dream characters and symbols and that they, um, they express themselves that way. And if you understand um, a symbol and what that actually means, um, you know, you and what that connection is to an archetype, then in a way, the symbol is a um, really poor version of that archetype, but you can still experience that. Um, I use, you know, like um, maybe energies or consciousnesses in the place of archetypes. So um, now, because that just makes more sense to me, is that. Um, in a way, these symbols connect to consciousnesses and that the symbols and dreams are actually um, visual, you know, or embodied in a way, uh, expressions of those consciousnesses that you're interfacing with through the through them. So um, 
but I mean, like if you say, say you're having an experience, you know, where you're um, having coffee with a friend, you know, you wouldn't sit there and try the whole time to define who the friend was, you know, like, who is this person, you know, um, you instead like kind of take the experience as it was happening in their voice and their words. And you could kind of have like a frame of reference of who, you know, that friend is to you and all that, all that material that makes up that relationship to that friend. But the more important aspect of what the, you know, the experience of the friend is, is actually what they're communicating to you, you know, and the emotion behind it and your, as you're experiencing what they're saying, kind of that relationship of the experience. So in a dream experience, I kind of take the same approach instead of saying like, who is this person that's speaking to me? I kind of say, well, what are they saying? How does that affect me? What is that doing to change my life? What are they, um, you know, informing me of? Is that good? Is that bad? You know, we, one thing that I think that isn't really talked about in dream interpretation is the negative aspects of these things. So um, can your mind lead you astray, you know, and there's not a lot of danger written in these texts on um, listening to the dream experience and it leading you in a poor direction, which I think is um, kind of absurd since everything has a negative and positive to it. So I think it's kind of important to keep in mind when you're having dream experiences is that can you trust all the information that's coming out of uh, the symbols trying to communicate to you? And if they are archetypal, as Jung and Hillman would like us to believe, then there absolutely needs to be um, some caution taken in consideration, I think. Yeah, I think archetypes have two different kind of meanings to them. So first being personal and second being collective, just like the unconscious and emotions, right? And so I was wondering how similar do you think are the lucid astral projection hypnagogic states with the psychedelic states? Like how many correlations do you think exist or how would you relate one to the other? Um, well, I think the problem arises with, um, I'll just say uh, this real quick. Before I get to that, but the problem arises with Jung and Hillman is in these things because um, they kind of define, they, they kind of make the relationships separate, like you're saying, you know, like a personal and then the collective unconscious, right? And, um, you know, and Jung used a lot of different cultural references to get to these points, such as like yoga and modern, you know, like uh, Western psychology. He knew a lot about that, obviously, but yoga was a big influence in him shamanism he's kind of touched in that a little bit and um yeah. but it was primarily like eastern religion in a way and then alchemy and if you really uh, alchemy is a big part of his work too he studied alchemy quite a bit however like um you know he, he also discredits um many alchemy alchemical following traditions such as um you know, like the some of the occult groups, stuff like that. So um, uh, he's a very complex when he comes to these things. And what I'm getting to is that um, he limited himself in some ways of understanding these things because um, I don't think he fully understood what the alchemy was saying or the Eastern religions were saying about these states and their relationship to each other. So when you come into like hypnagogia 
and um, you know, dream states, and then like out of body experiences, stuff like that, and, and psychedelics. You kind of um, you want to put them in categories. You know, you want to put them in these in these confined things so you can actually define what they are and relate them to other people. Um, but really, what it, I think. Um, you have to kind of step out of Jung and Hillman, I think, in order to really understand it. And the alchemy um, essentially says they're all the same experience happening. And that physical reality is actually the manifestation, the, the lowest manifestation of those experiences coming together as actual form. So it's like, if you think of them as vibration type states or conscious states, um, physical reality is a conscious state, but it's the final lowest vibrational state that consciousness can express and it becomes physical manifestation so if you think of it like that you don't have to believe that but if you think of it like that then you can start relating some of these experiences as say levels of consciousness or vibrational states and the more vibration you add the less um, physical man uh, reality becomes and more imaginative and um, unconscious, you could say, a reality becomes. So in that sense, if you look at like a psychedelic experience in, in relation to like um, a out-of-body experience or something like that, then they can all have the same aspects of each other and they actually all interact with the same um, uh, elements and they all are as real as each other, but they kind of work on different frequencies in a way. And so um, you know, the shamans would like to have you believe that the, when you take a psychedelic, you're actually communicating with, um, the spirit. Well, if you go into Jung's work and you replace spirit with say symbol or a uh, human with archetypes, then suddenly those things are as real in human's words and Jung's words as spirit, uh, is to the shamans. So, um, and the same thing with dream experiences, I don't think they are at all limited to the personal um, unconscious of the individual. I think that they connect um, together on a greater consciousness, which is everything. And that um, working with those those fields, essentially those consciousnesses, you can come to know things about yourself and the world around you because we would be all expressions of that same thing. I don't know if that's kind of answers that question at all or yeah, I think it does. So within Jungian alchemy, right, we have a notion like how Jung starts to explain individuation in terms of alchemy. So he says something like, in terms of elements, you turn from negredo to albedo to rubido. Right. So that that's the process of individuation within Jungian alchemical psychology. And so when we take, you know, psychedelics in a way, we can relate to that mechanism or the way of explaining the individuation process because psychedelic experiences and lived experiences coming into, you know, a positive, going towards a positive outlook. And so it can be compared to that alchemical, you know, metaphor. So how, like, if you were to compare the 
psychedelic states with some of the Jungian notions of processes, which one do you think comes close to describing it? Individuation or some kind of shadow work? Um, I would say all of them. So <laughs> all that you described, the shadow work and the individualization process. So, you know, um, the I, I read, you know, Jung's um, ideas and concepts about individualization and it really, you know, I was like, I'm trying to understand what this is. And I would ask my teachers, you know, and they gave me some answers and uh, a lot of them were, have different opinions about the subject. And, um, and so it's hard to kind of get an idea of really what, you know, is being said, you know, like if, and Jung kind of leaves it like um, open, you know, uh, it's individual, right? So it's not like everybody's process of coming to the center is like um, the same. And since you did take it from, you know, this concept of coming to kind of like a conclusion in your life, you know, a, a point of um, unity, you we have to go back to like the alchemy where Jung got these ideas from in like um, the philosopher's stone creation and then uh, the images like the um, the phoenix and stuff like that and they said you know very specific things in their work I'm not going to really go into it here but um, you know I think I think there's more to be explored in the source than really just relying on what Jung interpreted you know and I think that's the importance of the alchemy actually and why it was passed down in images and stuff like that is because um, the knowledge isn't limited to one person that saw the image and said oh of course this is what it means you know it's if you look at the same images that Jung did and the same writings you may come to um, a similar but different conclusion than he did so I think it's important for us uh, especially people that are into Jung um, to go to where he got his material from and kind of re-explore it for yourself after maybe reading his work. Um, but I would say in a you know, psychedelic experience as well as a dream experience, as well as any experience that we encounter um, in our life, it's working with those, at least, you know, at the very least what you described, the shadow and um, coming to a individual conclusion of your life. You know, it's a process that's taking place and, um, through symbols, you know, like every, even, a, and this is where Jung kind of, um, he wasn't specifically just honed in on dream work. He was honed in on, um, using active imagination to work with images during the day. And I think a lot of people don't really understand what, um, Jung meant by image and symbol. They, um, they think, oh, an, an image is something you look at, you know, and that's it. And a symbol is like a weird object, you know, uh, that you see and, and it kind of does something to, you know, like it makes you feel a certain way based on your understanding of that symbol. That's not really um, what Jung was getting at either. So, you know, it's, it's interesting to look at Jung's um, active imagination and go, what, what is going on here? You know, like, how did he, how did he get this idea? He started talking to images that are appearing in his life that were manifesting as real people, you know, and things like that, and really kind of going into this strange realm of writing his red book and stuff like that, you know. And um, if you start 
asking your questions about that, then it kind of um, makes you see things in a, in a little different way about um, who Jung was and where he's going with his work. So a uh, long way of saying, it, I, I think that psychedelics are definitely shadow work um, and they're definitely um, a process, you know, they bring up the process of individualization probably each time a person engages with it as well as like afterwards. So um, like the shamans, they, they don't say that like you take, they don't think like we think about medicine, you know, we, we take a psychedelic and when the experience ends, we're like, Oh, well, you know, now, now I'm back to normal. Now I'm Lee Adams again and everything's fine. That's not how they think of it. Once you open that doorway to that spirit, it's going to express itself through your life for, eternity so um you know it's a continual process and that's what they're talking about is that that process of becoming uh, individualized by Jung's words and so for some time now i've been researching into um hallucinatory stages and so mm -hmm. different hallucinatory stages have somewhat similar visual perceptual effects to them and so how we see, you know, in hypnagogic or hypnopompic hallucinations, you have series of different kinds of visuals. So either geometric or Tetris effects, which are basically a combination of your short-term memory and your long-term memory. And so long-term memory symbols are archetypal, mostly. And so you have all these different kinds of visuals within hypnagogia. And when you're in a psychedelic experience, you somewhat have that Tetris effect uh, and recognizing archetypes and just because it's such a deep psychedelic state of mind. And so there's a lot of comparisons that can be drawn. And then the argument comes, you know, if whether there are any objective symbols that exist within, you know, this reality or this universe. So do you think that there are any kinds of objective archetypes or objective symbols which are, so, you know, we can say maths is one way, which is one language or is one, you know, method which is highly objective. Mm. So do you think there are any objective symbols or objective archetypes within our universe? Yes, I think every symbol, every image, everything that you've ever experienced is universal and that's say something profound i think because it kind of goes away from this idea of like oh this is an important symbol or this isn't an important symbol or whatever um i think everything is and it is universal uh has universal meaning to it has archetypal power to it you could say um everything and it's not limited to dream experiences. It's not limited to psychedelic experiences. It's everything that you've ever engaged with every second of your being. And, um, and that, that, I mean, I know that's a, you know, that's a lot to take in or to believe, I guess, or accept. And, but um, it all comes down to knowing what a symbol is. And I would say that uh, young most likely near the you know later in his life he understood this concept and he he spoke about it quite greatly and uh, pacifica actually um some of the teachers there kind of um showed me 
the importance of symbol and actually what what they are, uh, at least as far as I can understand them. And um, from their work, I, I came to this conclusion, and they would uh, many of them would support my my answer on that. Um, it's a world of looking away from uh, thinking, you know, everything solid or everything could be known, and and a symbol is actually the unknown. You know, it's a way to connect to the unknown. So, um, you know, I have a coffee cup on my desk, and I know what the form of a coffee cup is because I've kind of learned about it. But we have to ask ourselves, like, why is a coffee cup um, in the shape it is and has the use that it has and and everything? And you know, if you go back to the beginning of time, of the really start of that coffee cup it would always come out to be the exact same shape and shape um, that it is right now, the exact same design, because that is what manifests in reality. That is what it is. So it, but it represents so much more than just what I label it as, as the coffee cup. It represents, you know, different, many different layers to it. So um, I know that's probably not a great answer um, to that, but the, what I would say about psychedelic experience, because I've had many of my own personal uh, psychedelic experiences, and I primarily uh, tried to uh, have those experiences because I wanted to know the relationship to dr my dream experiences in them. And I, I can honestly say that I've had uh, psychedelic experiences and dreams just as powerful, if not more so, than um, without or with psychedelics. And I've had the same experiences in hypnagogia as well as a dream experience that I've had on psychedelics and the other way around too. I've had many dreamlike experiences on psychedelics. So I, I can't really categorize them, you know, or I no longer really try to go and say, oh, what is, you know, what is the brain doing in this state? A lot of people um, are kind of stuck in that, you know, and it's, uh, and it's kind of goes into a different like subject, but um, I like to use the analogy of like riding a bike, you know, we can sit there and try to understand and read the manual of what it's like to ride the bike um, and describe the, the bicycle and all the gears and all the wheel pieces and everything. But really, is that experiencing what it is to, to ride the bike, you know, like, uh, I would say no, the experience of riding the bike, just get on it, fall over, hurt yourself, get back on it, you know, and then eventually feel like, the freedom riding around and the speed and the wind, you know, and all that. And that's what brings the joy of riding the bike. And then the usefulness of that too, as a tool. And if we spend all our time trying to like understand the gears and all the mechanics of the bike, we'll never really experience like what it is. Um, and I would rather, you know, get to the point that I can understand the bike, what it's useful, usefulness is and how to ride it and then get on and try to, um, try to ride the bike and that's how I take uh, dream experiences and the knowledge about consciousness and the knowledge is about dreams and psychedelics and all that is like after a point I have to kind of say oh, I I know enough to engage with it and I'll learn so much more from the experience and I kind of have to give up my you know power of position my ego in order to do so and and that um, you know that's what the shamans teach not in just uh psychedelics with spiritual work you know you're in, they treat it with respect because they 
they believe that it's engaging with something that is is powerful, more powerful than um, knowing about it. The experience itself will um, kind of lead you into a relationship with those things and to the knowledge that they're trying to express through them. Yeah, so when you say that objective symbols are pure experience and are everything, it's kind of like saying that everything is consciousness. So there's a lot of arguments for consciousness or there's a lot of way to look at the conscious phenomena. So one of the ways would be, oh, so everything is mind, which comes from one of these ancient Egypt uh, philosophies from Kabbalion. I'm not sure if you're aware of it. And so within that, one of the main teachings or one of the main sayings is that everything is mind, that the universe is all mind, so everything is consciousness. And then we have, you know, certain post-structuralist philosophers like Sartre saying that con con everything has consciousness in a way. So objects would have consciousness due to reflective and immediate consciousnesses. And so there's a lot of you know, arguments to against and for consciousness and about the entire conscious phenomena and also to a certain degree the unconscious phenomena. So what argument do you ascribe to like when it comes to the consciousness argument? Uh, I I think that everything is conscious that the material of reality itself is conscious and that we are an expression of that. So uh, I think it's infinitely more complex than that um, simplistic uh, acts, you know, view. But um, uh, I think Jung would have agreed with me on that because he believed in uh, God as in the big letter G God, the all expressing mind that the um, Kabbalion talk about so um, and that we would be contained in that, all that so yeah I, I think I would agree with that everything is conscious yeah it's really interesting because so I don't know if you're aware of it but Jung once published a critique upon masculine because he thought that, that it was the most in, improper way to uh, dive into the development of the intuition process and so um yeah i didn't know i didn't know that i didn't hear about that one i mean i um you know he, he was kind of critical of people using many different things like uh psychedelics as well as um he was uh you know, kundalini yoga and things like that to explore their consciousness but you know like masculine has been used by indigenous tribes as you know peyote and stuff like that uh, for a long time time and they treat it with respect and stuff um but if we use it in the context that um americans use today as just oh we're just going to take this pill and we're going to have an experience and then we're going to go back to our daily life you know it's like um yeah that doesn't really fit in line with uh, what the tribes people thought they thought they were engaging with the spirit and that once you engage with it it's kind of like now you have a new friend that's following you around all the time and um it's very disrespectful to be like, okay, friend, just go away now. You know, you've, you've had your stay. I'm, I'm done with you. You know, I don't think anybody would like that. So, um, you know, I, I'd be critical of it too, but I also don't, you know, I, I used uh, psychedelics in a way that I think that were 
that tribes people, you know, indigenous tribes people and people have used them for thousands of years probably would be like, I can't believe that guy is doing that. And now I look back at it, you know, I, I think the same thing. I can't believe that um, I thought that way. But they also led me to understand the world in a different way and to see it in maybe closer of a light that the, um, you know, the tribes people uh, did and to respect these things in a different way. And I, it doesn't mean that I think other people shouldn't take psychedelics or anything like that. But in my own personal life, you know, I, I have a different respect for those uh, sacred plants than I did before. And um, I try to respect their, their, um, their use and, you know, and their, their being through, um, you know, my own way. So um, that's, so like within Jungian psychology, to what extent do you think is the collective unconscious shared? Because collective could, you know, be reduced to cultural differences. But then if one was to say, what are, you know, is there any universal kind of collective unconscious? What would you think about it? Do you think there's a... Yeah, so I mean... If everything is mind, you know, then everything's connected on that level, which is an unimaginable large level, but everything would be um, connected consciously through that because it's all the same consciousness. So, you know, a lot of people use like the concept of I am God because, you know, they use this idea that everything's connected together and they're like, okay, well, if everything's connected together, then I'm, I'm obviously God. And that's kind of, uh, kind of a true thing however you know you're not you're not god you're an aspect of god expressing itself through many many different layers to the point that you're human being you know with your own individual consciousness but you still have a collective consciousness on a on another level and so i like to think of it as layers of an onion in a way so you know this the closer you get to physical manifestation the more in the layer you actually get and the closer you are to physical uh, reality and your own personal consciousness and you expand out you get on these other layers where different collectivenesses are you know so you go a layer out and you could say well that's the memory of say um my maybe past lives or something like that and layer out and then that's the layer of all the lives of the people that have ever lived on the planet earth you know and if we look at like the solar system and this pattern of solar systems and galaxies and how they're connected and everything together then we kind of see the same pattern occurring where you have like individual planets and then they collectively become a uh, solar system and then a galaxy and then the universe kind of um, expresses a set out from that maybe even multi-universes you know like so bubbles and bubbles and bubbles you know to make these different collective pieces to make one giant unit together and i think consciousnesses work the same way i don't i mean if if you follow alchemy and you actually agree to it which young you know he's surely supported alchemy then there's the holographic universe concept which is kind of everything is a fractal of everything so um and it represents everything so you can't you can look externally to 
say this solar system you can see how the planets work together and um, how they how they're used as symbols even to relate to yourself because there's the same pattern repeating itself over and over and over again so um in that sense i think you know everything is connected in one way but it's also individual in another it's but it's really based on your level of consciousness perspective that you see those things true so some of this uh ancient alchemy you know was definitely rooted with the traditional shamanism culture and so that's how shamanism kind of integrated that alchemy alchemical psychedelic uh tradition with their teachings and then now it's a part of our culture and so what do you think about the current state of shamanism because you know everyone claims to be a shaman in a certain regard but true shamanism do you think it's more traditional or do you think anyone could be a shaman as long as their intentions are solid and clear well um really depends on what you define as shamanism so or a shaman so you know um it's been a while since i've really looked at the word and like um what people are defining it as and our culture defines it different ways than other cultures would and even the use of words you know like different people in different cultures would call each other different things some would be just considered you know medicine um man you know essentially and you know then you could apply it to a doctor you know you'd be like oh a, a doctor without ever taking any psychedelics is obviously a shaman because they heal people they're a medicine man or woman and so it depends on what you're defining a shaman as so if i define the shaman as somebody that has the training has worked with uh, psychedelics is a um has brought been brought up into culture had the calling to those things um you know then a calling to it and then went through the training of the um master shaman as an apprentice for years you know and and eventually was accepted by the master shaman as um, a shaman themselves then i don't think that many people could really do that um, because it's it's very challenging um, but if a person you know of any culture felt that that would be important then they could go through that process find a master and be taught underneath them if they're accepted and become a shaman um and there's a you know the lineage of that too um there's also a good book on uh shamanism um i forget the author's name but he he's a historian on religion um uh, Il iliad i forget his last name you may know it do you know what i'm talking about uh no i have no idea uh, okay well, i'll find the link and send it to you but um the, the author, he, he wrote uh, many books on religion and he did an excellent job, I think, in his book of kind of picking apart this definition of what a shaman is. And sometimes uh, in cultures, uh, shamans would have to have uh, dreams essentially in order to be initiated into becoming a shaman. And the initiation would actually be, um, it's a common abduction dream actually. And where they're taken up during a time of dreams and 
dream could be interpreted as a psychedelic experience as well. So it's not limited to the just a dream, but it could be a dream experience where they're essentially taken up into the sky or they're actually pulled into the ground and then they're dissected and put back together. And it's, it's like um, cross-culturally most, one of the most bizarre um, commonalities and shamanisms that he found. And as, and I was reading it, I was like, I've heard these same things too, obviously like um, it's very common for people that have had abduction type dreams to um, be taken up into the sky and dissected and put back together with different pieces in them. And the um, shamans um, that have had these dreams happen to them, they describe stones of different various stones being put in them, things like that, um, you know, different technologies put in them. And, you know, it may be a description of somebody from, you know, say no one's that's had any real technology or anything calling a what we would call today like an electronic device or something like that put into you you know um i could see like them describing a stone as an electronic device or something like that so you're kind of crossing over to like the alien type abduction dreams and um these experiences and um and they've been studied too and like um sleep labs and stuff like that people have had sleep paralysis with uh common they consecutive like uh, abduction type dreams they've been studied and it's shown that they were actually in sleep paralysis uh, having these experiences. So they're having hypnogagia while they're being abducted. They never physically left the office, you know, or anything like that, like they thought. Um, but so these shamans, you know, cross-culturally have a commonality of having these um, abduction type dreams and then being uh, cut apart and reassembled. So in some cultures, that's a requirement in order to become a shaman. And, um, you know, and that's kind of bizarre. It's like, oh, well, what's that? But I think what I'm getting at is like the definition of what a shaman is and is, is very different to different people. And um, so it's hard for me to say oh, one person's a shaman or can't be a shaman or whatever. I, I don't think of myself as a shaman. I've had the abduction, abduction dream where I've been disassembled and put back together and, um, you know, in some cultures that would be considered being initiated as a shaman. I don't, I don't really think that's important to me, the word. And um, I'm not really super interested in healing other people with um, psychedelics or anything like that. But um, yeah, I don't, that's kind of a complex question to answer. Sorry, hopefully I'm okay there. What are the techniques that you personally think motivate you or are easy to follow in order to get into a lucid state of consciousness sure because there's like a it's like mild and wild and you can find a lot of them online but like it's mostly you know personal every every lucid dreamer has that personal way of getting into that sure yeah well i think there's infinite amounts of ways to do it and some people naturally uh, just come to have lucid dreams unlike some other people and some people need training. Um, what is common in all the techniques that I've found is really bringing um, the realization to the mind that this is important and I'm spending time doing something in order to have a more conscious experience. Um, and we do that in the waking life too, you know, like 
um, say you're eating some food and you really want to enjoy the food. So you take your time and you really focus on it and you spend, you know, time kind of having the experience of the food and you're really feeling it and, and, and the, and you enjoy it more, you're more conscious of that experience, you know, and, um, that kind of attention to something, um, shows to yourself, you know, you could say to maybe your higher self, you know, that you're really interested in, um, being aware, you know, and so most of the, if not all the techniques of lucid dreaming is actually just bringing um, kind of like I describe it as like a ritual into your life where you intentionally do something, you intentionally focus on something to bring consciousness to it. And then oftentimes that is just enough to really have the, the lucid dream or the lucid, more lucid experience when you're um, in an altered state. So, um, but, you know, science is one of the best techniques that we have to really um, explain experiences and um, effectivenesses of some practices. And the mild technique, uh, which is the mnemonic induced lucid dreaming, that technique is one of the most effective techniques that people uh, have used. And I can talk about that, as well as the wake back to bed um, technique, which is means really what it means is wake wake up and then go back to bed and those uh combined together are statistically the most powerful methods of lucid dreaming that are available for people to do and that's with peer-reviewed research showing that so um would you like me to go into what they are and how to kind of do them? yes please okay um so I'll start with the wake back to bed because it's the easiest one to ex explain. And essentially um, what you're doing is you're going to sleep and you're sleeping for a period of time. Um, generally, I'd like to sleep like four to five hours, a period of time of that so that I can get enough uh, normal rest and I'm not trying to just force myself into a, a lucid experience. So four to five hours of sleep. And then I wake up for about 30 minutes to an hour and then I just go back to sleep with the intention of having a lucid dream or the intention to be aware of why I'm dreaming. Um, if you kind of pull this apart, you can see that when we sleep for a period of time, um, we're building up our REM cycles. So the longer that you sleep, um, the more REM that you're going to have. And most people, it's still up in the air, but most people, um, have dreams you know during REM sleep uh, you can have non-REM dreams too and um, but we generally think still today that uh, REM is primarily where you would have a dream and then the most chances possible to become aware in the dream and by extending by sleeping the four or five hours of sleep you're kind of getting these REM cycles built up so the longer you're sleeping the more REM that you have and um, you're trying to um, wake up you know essentially um, become conscious in a REM cycle so what waking up does is it actually wakes you up right so after the four or five hours of sleep you're gonna wake up and you're going to do like some activity to stay awake. So you really actually just want to wake the mind up. 
So your your mind thinks I'm awake, I'm awake, I'm aware. And then you do awake, you go back to bed. And going back to bed makes it so that you now are awake, but then your mind goes, okay, I'm going back to bed. Now it's time to dream because I'm I'm actually never kind of woke up. I'm still in this uh, REM cycle increase mode kind of experience. So uh, I go back to sleep and then hopefully I can either bring awareness into my dream from falling back to sleep while um, staying aware or I will go into a dream and I will realize that I'm actually dreaming. And that process, that end process is really hard to like um, understand until you experience it. Um, so it's not really easy for me to explain like how you become aware in a dream, you know, um, or how you keep awareness while you're falling asleep. And, but um, through doing that process many times, the individuals start kind of learning um, how to do that. It's like telling somebody how to ride a bicycle, you know, like um, I kind of told everybody how to have the lucid dream, but now they have to go ride the bicycle and kind of like figure out how to balance themselves, you know, without falling down. And that's that kind of in process, the really important process, but it's, and it could take some time, but you'll eventually be able to ride it. You can, you know, um, so that's the wake back to bed method. The uh, mild technique, um, the mnemonic induced lucid dreaming, it's um, essentially when you're going to kind of follow the same process, but you're naturally going to wake up instead of force yourself to wake up after four to five hours. And when you wake up from, uh, say, a dream, you're going to remember the dream that you had um, before you woke up. So um, say my dream was riding a bike. So I imagine myself as I'm awake riding my bike and I'm trying to recall as best I can. So I'm riding my bike down the road and, um, you know, I'm moving the gears and everything and I feel the wind in my face and all that stuff. I'm imagining as best I can. And at the same time, I'm also imagining myself in that dream as if I was lucid. So I'm riding my bike, wind's going through my hair or whatever. And suddenly I realize I'm, I'm aware in my dream and this is all a dream. And I'm imagining that, excuse me, in my mind. So then you're going to go back to sleep now with the intention to have your next dream as a lucid dream. So you're like, okay, I'm imagining myself on the bike, wind's going through my hair and I'm aware. And what I would do if I was lucid and I have the intention now to go back to sleep, have a dream, and become lucid. And that's the process. So you go back to sleep. And by having the intention and also the memory of um, the false memory, you could say, of having a lucid dream in that last dream, that's sometimes enough to cause people to become lucid. Um, I don't know how Stephen LeBerg came to relate this idea. But statistically, that they, they've shown that this technique is very um, powerful. And what I would do and then suggest is people use both the wake back to bed method and the mild technique together, essentially doing the same thing where instead of, um, so you would say you're out, you're uh, clocked four or five hours of sleep, you wake up, you stay up for a period of time, 
but you're also in, introducing the mild technique. So you're recalling a dream that you had previously. Um, you're imagining yourself during this time that you're awake, you know, for the 30 minutes to 60 minutes, what that dream was like. You're, you're recalling it. You're imagining yourself in it as if you were lucid. And then uh, 30 to 60 minutes, you know, after you w have woken up, then you set the intention to have a lucid dream by while remembering the previous dream as being lucid and you're going back to bed. So it's kind of like a combination of using the wake back to bed with the, um, the mild technique together. And those are, um, I mean, they're, they're by themselves, they're very effective, but together I think they'd be even more effective. And that's what I've used in the past. In my book, I also talk about supplements. Um, there is many different supplements, which are plants, you know, and we could say they're um, used in shamanistic traditions and their spirits, you could say too, and have respect for them. But um, I talk about all the different plants and their effectiveness on lucid dreaming and also improving your sleep overall. But one such plant, uh, two plants really, uh, is the red spider lily and the snowdrop lily, which we um, extract uh, as galantamine, is very effective in inducing lucid dreams too. Um, peer review data shows that it's maybe around 80% more effective than um, placebo, even with the wake back to bed and um, the mild technique. So you know, if the person feels inclined to and they feel it's safe and, you know, talk to their doctor if they feel that's needed uh, before using. But if they feel that they sh should try that, then galantamine is a very effective way to induce lucid dreams. And it's very effective if you use it in combination with um, the mild and the wake back to bed technique as well. So, um, and there's a lot of information online that my site has all these different techniques uh, on it that people can go to and they can um, they can read about like, all the techniques there for free and different reasons of why they'd want to use it over another reason, as well as uh, all the supplements um, that I've researched and other people have had uh, research as well. True. Um, so you know, this famous neuroscientist named Anil Sait once said that reality is a hallucination. So, you know, it just becomes abstract anytime you start to think about your conscious and even to a certain degree unconscious experiences. And so, yeah. you know, talking about supplements, uh, I was researching some supplements a long time ago, like looking for some natural nootropics. And so, you know, nowadays you can get some L-theanine, caffeine, you know, some lion's mane mushroom and some GABA, some alpha GPC, bacopa extract. You know, there's a lot of uh, nootropics available locally. And now that, you know, things are getting legalized and everything, uh, especially in the United States with psilocybin, uh, you know, psilocybin can treat depression and anxiety especially with people having cancer and all, all of the terminally ill you know, diseases. And so, you know, now with this rapid legalization, we also see, you know, compounds like Kratom or Kratom where people, which is like a light stimulant in low doses, but uh, an opioid in the end if taken in larger amounts. So people use that drug to kick, out, kick off their opioid addiction. Hmm. 
we have substances like that. So do you think there's like, do you find any one particular substance fascinating, any lesser known plant or mushroom? Yeah, um, I mean, I've used a lot of those supplements that you've talked about as well as um, psilocybin, uh, ayahuasca, stuff like that too. Um, the My favorite is galantamine, to be honest with you. Um, I have tremendous respect for it and I, and I think it's an incredibly powerful thing. Um, it, can, it can cause horrific nightmares <laughs> and experiences. And it can also cause like uh, amazing dreams, you know, but, um, or, you know, learning experiences too. Um, but I, I really enjoyed having the relationship with that. Um, it's a plant, you know, we're extracting chemicals from a plant, but it's plants. And there's not a lot of history written about um, red spider lily or snowdrop lily, which is the same thing they're extracting from. Uh, galantamine from but um if you look into snowdrop lily um there's a lot of folklore images um produced on um from that plant representing that plant and you know there's like fairies and gnomes and stuff like that and there's a reason for that and um there's also um japanese put uh red or this spider lily on graves of people because they they um they believed it causes death and or what i would like to think is it causes the experience of death or this um diving into the depths of the individual which some people would you know attribute to dying and rebirth and stuff like that so it, to me that's probably the most um powerful plant that i've ever encountered and i have a lot of respect for even over psychedelics. I mean, I've had very um, impactful psychedelic experiences, but um, I've kind of gone away from those just because they're they're too much for me. They're, um, you know, it's very powerful uh, experiences to the point that it's just too much for me to learn from. I can't really take enough away from that um, to process. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm more interested in learning from like a, a garden hose than a fire hose to the face, you know, and I can take a lot more from that. Um, and so I have to kind of know where I'm at and maybe someday I'll be ready to go back and to those points, but I'm definitely uh, not ready for that as I thought it was once before. But, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of people interested in psychedelics today because of the healing properties of it. And I think the real healing property of psychedelics isn't the material of the plant. Um, it's more, and I don't think anybody really thinks that, you know, like the plants for the most part healing people, it's more of the experience. It's like this, uh, the experience is somehow healing people and they're really interested in why the experience is doing that. And I think the, the healing properties of these is, to allow the individual to see and to experience what reality really is. You know, we define reality as non-hallucination, non-hallucinatory. It's physical, we share it. Um, we're not all seeing different things, supposedly. Um, but that's not really how 
reality is. And, um, and there's no real way to describe reality being the way that we see it as actually being how it is. So, um, so it's more of how it's, how we, how it's actually not, how we actually don't see it is more real than how we see it. And in that sense, if we take a psychedelic or have a dream experience that kind of shifts our perspective of reality, it kind of broadens our perspective of um, what really hallucinations are, including our own reality, then we can see that things are um, more fluid than physical. And just by releasing that, you know, the burden of this physical um, confinement to things, it heals people because now we're connected. We're kind of connecting back to ourselves, you know, in a way. Uh, I think modernity has kind of separated itself from the unconscious, you could say. And, um, you know, Jung would consider that very ego-based. And um, it's kind of uh, damaging, you know, when you when you think you're completely individual, you're not part of a collective um, can be very damaging to people and psychologically damaging and cause disease right and disease so um i think that's what the psychedelics really are doing is kind of allowing people to see reality and how it is and to heal from that true especially now that we have so many you know so much availability for psychedelic and entheogenic knowledge and literature and so, you know, we have so many books by Dennis McKenna about, you know, psychopharmacologic search for psychoactive drugs. It's a, it's a list of articles from 19th century to 2017 available in two volumes. Then we have Pekal and Tekal by Alexander and Hans Shulgin. We have Dr. Rick Strassman's book about DMT and sort of prophecy. Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception, uh, Michael Collins' book, How to Change Your Mind. And then we also have this 18th century poet, Thomas De Quincey's uh, article, not even articles, just his sayings on his confessions being an opium eater. We have a lot yeah. of literature available now. Have you read any any of these? Yeah, I've read probably everything you've, you've said. Um, I have a decent library on the subject but um and i've talked to some of those people too like um rick strassman um dennis mckenna and stuff like that and um you know people are alive i've talked to um i mean it's it's a wonderful thing to have knowledge available to people to explore and read and um what i have found through my own personal experience as well as the friends of mine that i truly think are exploration or explore explorers say of this subject they really self-reflect and dive deep inside to it you start realizing that the knowledge that you get from books even though it's tremendously powerful is only to get you so far it's to get you to the point that you go okay how i see things is actually um not what's happening <laughs> and um and i need to engage with that and I've talked about like the bike, you know, riding the bike versus reading about the bike. So the books are are tremendously important, but they're a tool to get you to the point that you go, okay, what I'm experiencing as 
reality is not just it. This is actually an aspect of it, but my consciousness is much different than just this physical thing that I'm doing right now. And how do I engage with that? And what does that mean to me? And how do I learn about it? And how do I grow from that? And how do I, what's my place in the world and my place in reality and the story that is I'm experiencing around me right now? And to kind of engage in that way. I mean, I, I've, I went down the rabbit hole of trying to know things, you know, and in doing so, it led me to, um, to realize I don't know things. Um, one thing I always thought was funny is that, um, and I've kind of recently even come to this realization is like, um, you know, for a long time, I was like, oh, psychedelics, you know, like that's, that's the thing. That's what's going to do everything. It's going to change my life. And, um, but then I started thinking about dreams and I was like, Hey, what, what is, okay. Every single night, you know, I go to sleep and I have at least three to four dreams a night. Um, most of them, I don't even remember, but some that I do remember if I'm lucky, they're like, um, the most crazy narrative driven stories that seem absolutely, totally real. And the memories I have in those dreams seem real as too, as real as, you know, me today, right now. And I go, well, if, if that is say a hallucination, then I have the most uh, realistic hallucinations, psychedelic like experiences every single night of my life. And so does everybody else on this planet and nobody even cares, you know? And it's like, uh, I really don't need to take a psychedelic. I'm having psychedelic experiences every single night. And really, I'm just not paying attention to them because they're, they happen all the time. And, you know, it's not unique, you could say, or something. But once, yeah, once you start engaging with your dreams, they, they take on a different, um, they take on a different meaning. They, they become alive, you know, it's like shining a light on a, shining a light on a, in a certain area of a room that's been dark the whole time. And suddenly you see like all the crazy monsters and creatures there that have been there the entire time that you just haven't been focused on. So um, there's many ways to going to the same place, you know, psychedelics definitely are one of those ways. And I um, I've used them and I'm very um, grateful for what they have taught me and they've taught my friends and uh, healed me various ways but I also noticed the internal uh, psychedelic that's there all the time for me to engage with as well through dreams and and dreams take a lot of hard work and discipline to really engage with um, sometimes uh, myself specifically are is not really interested in building discipline <laughs> it can be hard um, so I like the quick fix of taking something and being blown away, you know, my control mechanism just trashed. But, um, you know, if I really spend time and discipline and really start to build a dream practice up, it can be very fulfilling and as fulfilling, if not more than I think psychedelics for myself. True. Apart from, I think, you know, psychedelic literature, we also have, you know, theatrical representations or replications through film or documentaries. So, you know, we have Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia showing the traditional 
and the empirical way of continuing and making psychoactive substances. So, you know, you'll have wide range of media to consume or any kind of um, psychedelic knowledge. So talking yeah. about, you know, real cut edge dreams, you know, there are a lot of antidepressants and, you know, bipolar medicines like Seroquel or Petroline. And, you know, also I think this is one substance, Mirtazapine. These drugs mm-hmm. induce very cut-edge realistic dreams. So have you heard of any of these, you know, drug-induced real dreams that make you, you know, wonder when you wake up or if, if, if it really happened or if it was a dream? Um, sh- sure, yeah. I mean, um, if you're talking about pharmaceutical drugs that do that, as well as there's psychedelics that do that too, like, um, uh, dang, I uh, can't. My brain just went blank with it. Um, uh, man, salvia. Salvia is a interesting one because it causes wake um, waking hallucinations that are very real. Um, another one is ibogaine. I think um, it can cause very real or uh, not detura. That's it. Detura can cause very real waking hallucinations uh, for for days. Um, for some people say it's can be very dangerous, but, um, you know, they can, they can create hallucinations that are as real as waking reality or, um, yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I, I know I've had dreams where I wake up from them and I think, wow, that, you know, I can't believe I was dreaming like that. That was as real as anything I've ever experienced, you know? Um, all these things though, they're kind of getting to this point. If you really take the perspective that reality, though it's real, you know, it's as real as what we define as real as it's not just it. There's not, this isn't just it, you know, there's layers and layers and layers on top of it. They're all one unit. Like the, the alchemical saying of like, as below, so above, um, and the other way too, as above, so below, it's talking about this relationship um, of these fields um, at the same time, they're not separate from each other. You know, like a lot of people would like to say that reality is a simulation, you know, they're like, it's a simulation, it's not real. Well, it's as real as you can define real as, you know, but it's also a hologram. It's not a simulation. It's a hologram of these other fields manifesting as physical reality and psychedelics and drugs allow the individual who is locked into um, this idea that physical reality is just it you know they start to break apart that it starts to make it so that the person can see the fluidity in reality and from that become healed you know become more of a human being we, most of human existence, we haven't had this idea that reality is, is it. We talk to spirits and we, have, we talk to symbols and we use symbols to express ourselves. We still do today, but we use them in very various ways. Um, but we use that more often than we, we do today. And we had rituals and stuff like that. And that, that made our lives meaningful. 
Um, so when we're sick and we find no meaning in life, it's because we've kind of strayed away from these these ideas that we're rediscovering today as you know, Jung is rediscovering it or Freud is kind of rediscovering it and so on and so forth. You know, these people and um, you know, the authors that are that we rely on today, like uh, uh, Terence McKenna and stuff like that to really kind of get to these uh, things, you know, Terence is much so much so a um, he's kind of an indigenous shaman in a way. He's uh, leading people to see something that's been there, but he's nowhere like unique. He's he's been uh, expressed through people throughout all history. You know, he may be even the tribes person. He's our tribes person that says, "Hey, there's more to this going on than what we." We think we need ritual, we need um, spiritual practice, you know, we need all this stuff. Um, so he's playing his role, I think. True, dreams are definitely a majestic phenomenon. So, you know, there's a lot of theories, uh, you know, regarding how DMT induces, you know, like DMT is released and dodges me when you sleep. There's a lot of, you know, mm-hmm around that. So when we look at DMT, DMT is molecularly quite, you know, similar to melatonin. Mm-hmm. Melatonin induces sleep. So I was wondering to what extent these theories are true. Just yeah, to- I wondered that too. Um, <laughs> so um, I wondered it so much that that's what uh, enticed me to try ayahuasca and to um you know i at the time i had never tried any psychedelic before um most craziest thing i've ever done is maybe smoke a cigarette at that time so um you know i i read strassman's work i read um callaway's work i think his name was callaway it's been a long time since i've looked at the stuff but um i was very much into the peer-reviewed articles that um strassman had written along with um other people various people and even Benny, Benny Shannon and stuff like that. And, you know, I was like, well, they, they talk about this DMT as though it's like, um, as, as those people have had dreams, you know, like in the relationship to melatonin, it should be very dreamlike. And so that enticed me to try, um, ayahuasca. And I realized pretty quickly that they're, they're, they seem very different. Um, but they're also, uh, it took me a while, but I also started realizing similarities to them as well. But um, it took me, I, I was in the bad bag wagon of supporting DMT being this um, the endogenous mechanism that causes dreaming. And it took me probably about 10 years to come to the final conclusion that it wasn't. And the reason for that is um, actually on my website. And I'll, I'll also provide that link, but the summarized version of it is recently somebody actually produced um, uh, a researcher present, presented, excuse me, about that. He presented at a conference um, the relationship to DMT, to dream, the dream mechanism, and also the brain chemistry. And he, um, pretty much said, and I agree with them, is that there's not enough DMT, even if it is detectable in in the brain to actually cause uh, psychedelic experiences. 
um, it takes quite a bit of DMT, um, you know, through external use, either injected into you or through uh, means of like ayahuasca or something like that. It actually takes a decent amount uh, comparably to what's produced in the human brain to cause a person to have a psychedelic experience. And he sh shows the evidence that most likely not enough in the human brain to even cause mild hallucinations, especially not near uh, what is um, needed for a full-on dream hallucination that you and I experience multiple times a night. And if it was um, need, if it if DMT was the cause of that, then we would be able to detect it in larger amounts. So there's that. But then he also provides, um, like a good scientist should, a possible alternative explanation, and it relates to um, the the system in your brain called the nicotonic system, and uh, or nicotonic receptors in the brain, which um, oddly enough galantamine um, effects and also um, uh, salvia effects um, as well as um, uh, you mentioned the psychedelic before um, man my brain um, <laughs> um, what's the one that they're using for treatment of depression uh, it's a nasal spray it's an acidin right uh, no, it's a nasal spray one. It's um, it's used. You said at, at larger doses, it, it acts as an opiate. Oh, uh, kratom. No, not kratom. Sorry. Ah, oh, dang. Um, it's a sedative. Um, man, Saturday. <laughs> My brain's not working as great as it usually is. Anyways, um. Anyways, so it's used in therapy today. Uh, I can't, I don't remember the name of it. Anyways, they all kind of work off the same system um, that affects the nicotonic system. And it has nothing to do with nicotine, but it's just, um, it's a receptor, uh, series of receptors that um, affect the brain surveys. And so this nicotonic system modifies a lot of things like sleep behavior and stuff like that too. And all the psychedelics that are in this category are very dreamlike and very hallucinatory, like um, very powerful, real hallucinations, waking hallucinations, stuff like that. So it makes sense to me, you know, like um, I've used some of these psychedelics and I can tell just from the experience that they're very dreamlike as well as um, DMT itself wasn't dreamlike. It was, it felt very different than a dream. It felt um, like a, um felt very real however very different than a say out-of-body experience or a lucid dream or anything like that where these other ones kind of met that criteria a little bit more so you know in the conclusion i think that there's room to explore and research on the subject to see more about the relationship to dmt to dreaming um i think strassman kind of gave up on that after he um really delved into like melatonin relationship to DMT production. Um, I think he sees that there is a relationship, but it's in such small amounts that it's like, um, it just doesn't work. And a lot of his uh, new book um, kind of goes into this as well, because he, he tries to, um, at least from what I could take out of his book, is that he's trying to show that psychedelics not are not necessarily needed in order to have 
um, spiritual experiences too. And I think that's because of the endogenous uh, psychedelic that we have. But again, I don't think it's related specifically to DMT. I think DMT is part of that process, if that makes sense. Like it's a, uh, it's there for a reason in our brains, but it's a, uh, I don't think it's necessarily the mechanism that causes us to have nighttime hallucinations. True. Um, I mean, like you were talking about salvia, right? And so salvia is also known as the devil's lettuce. It is one of the most, probably one of the, it is the most, you know, potent psychedelic. And, you know, one of the more readily available ones just because they're illegal in certain countries. And so, and then we describe DMT as having this more of a spiritual positive to a certain extent uh, experience. So if you've tried, you know, salvia, or even if you haven't, like, what parallels can you make between the DMT experience and the salvia experience? Uh, well, they're very different. And I think it's because they're working on different, um, you could say different areas of the brain. Um, they're different receptors. And so, you know, DMT is working off of DMT receptors that we have in the brain and salvia is working off of nicotonic. And these activate different areas of the brain in different ways. So it's kind of hard to describe through that, you know, these different experiences. Um, salvia also was used endogenously, you know, for spiritual reasons too. But we uh, Westerners and uh, other countries now as well like to extract things and make them more potent so that we have a better experience, you know, supposedly. So most of the rap that salvia gets is from the extraction of the uh, chemicals, making it super potent. And then um, people have traumatic experiences from that. Some people use it and don't. And some people have used it and actually helped themselves get off of uh, drugs and stuff like that. So it's been therapeutic for a lot of people. Um, so um, I've used salvia uh, as the loose leaf um, just soaking it and then having experiences that way. And they were very super mild and very dreamlike. Um, I've never used the extract because of the, I've listened to the warnings and I've had friends that have used it and they definitely were like, don't, <laughs> don't do that. So I've listened to them uh, on that one. And, um, but DMT I've used in many different ways. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a, very different um, experience. And I, and I can't really describe those experiences so much, you know, like um, the, I, I think maybe I can describe DMT as being like a communion with another spirit, you know, and I know that, you know, for materialists, that's hard to understand by itself, but it's like, you're talking with a, I'm always talking with someone and they're explaining stuff to me. And, um, it's very, it can be very traumatic for me too, like very hard. I don't know how to describe that either. Very just hard. And, um, and salvia, when I took the loose leaf, it was, it was actually really calming. Um, I felt, you know, uplifted afterwards. And, um, also I had, uh, dream-like experiences, you know, like 
I would say semi out of body experiences. Um, and, but just very dreamlike, um, kind of like, uh, waking, like, a um, imaginative, you know, closing your eyes and starting to have a story kind of take place and take you somewhere, or, uh, you know, a typical, maybe hypnogogic dream, like experience almost. So, um, you know, I, I, I've really tried most of my life to go and try to explain these things as chemical and brain and um, reduce, reduce it as much as I can to really kind of know what was happening. And anymore, I go back to how uh, people have explained these things for thousands of years and as if, you know, these are almost living entities that you're experiencing and they're giving you a different frame of reality than you you typically would have and you know through that you can be healed and you can also be destroyed depending on who you are and how you take that you know i feel like um one of the main differences between salvia and dmt is its potency in the sense that you know the smoked activation is it's, it's active in micrograms for salvia and hence the extract and for DMT, it's milligrams. And so that's why people can have terrifying or intense DMT-like experiences on salvia. Oh, yeah. You know, it's yeah. Salvia is also unique in that it's reverse tolerance. So it's one of the few, I think it's the only psychedelic, but it's one of the few things I've ever read about that actually has an inverse tolerance to it. And so the more you use it, the worse, the more sensitive you get. And I've read people, uh, reports of people um, trying it years after the fact. Um, and they just even take a s smell, they can smell salvia and it causes them to start having hallucinations years after them using it. Um, they used it quite a bit prior to getting to that point. Um, but it's like, a, it's like your brain remembers the experience and it's so um, attuned to that experience that it can actually just activate it just from a smell or um, the more you use it the more the brain recognizes it and says okay you know I know what this is I'm just gonna help you along a little bit <laughs> so um, it's an interesting plant that's for sure and it very should be very cautious cautioned against using it um, in any sense without anybody watching you um, or in large amounts or in high concentrations. Um, I mean, I have never used it as an extract for very clear reasons. And I would suggest people not do that <laughs> if they can, so. Yeah, precisely. So it was very good to have you on the podcast, Lee. Uh, do you wanna tell people where they can check out your work and everything? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Um, my website is taileaters.com. It's like a tail as in like a dragon's tail and then eaters.com. Uh, it's uh, symbolic of the Ouroboros. So um, even Jung calls the Ouroboros tail eater. So um, that's kind of where I got the idea from for that. So you can go there and you can get my book there. Um, you can also pre-order my book. It comes out in May 
on um, Amazon or off the Inner Traditions website. And it's called Visionary Guide to Lucid Dreaming. And um, it'll be coming out on May 4th. And uh, I look forward to people to read it. Um, they can also email me if they have questions. Um, uh, they can type in Lee, L-E-E, -E, at taileaters.com. Or sorry, Lee period Adams, L-E-E period A-D-A-M-S, at taileaters.com. And they can send me um, any questions they have there. Um, and there's also a Discord group. So if they're interested in joining and chatting with other people, they can go to the website, again, taileaters.com, and go from there and join the Discord and chat with me there. And I'm pretty open to people's questions and communication. And I love to learn from other people. So I'd, I never pretend. I may have pretended in the past, but I definitely learned my lesson. And I don't pretend to know everything. And I think that's the point. Um, we're all kind of you know, on a journey together to learn who we are individually and through communication and communion with other people, we can start kind of building, uh, we can help each other in that realization. So um, I think the best way of doing that is self-reflection as well as um, communication with other people and their experiences to learn more. So I encourage people to go uh, to that website, join the Discord if they'd like to chat with other people and and we can talk and I can learn from you and maybe you can learn something from me if I have something to share. True, definitely. Communication is key these days. So it was a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks, yeah. Thanks for having me and it was great. Um, hopefully, you know, I look forward to uh, sharing this with other people.